I'm Kristen Marshan, and this is the Apianga Line. Today, I'm joined by Leslie Betts, Kathy Chepesky, Carol Peterson, and Lynn Stewart, all members of the Apianga Readers Theatre. They're here to help us thoroughly enjoy our summer. And what better way on any given Sunday than to sneak off and spend the afternoon soaking up the July sunshine down at the beach. So, once you're all settled in along the sand with those eternal waves rolling in, making you think of the sweet by and by, why not pop in some earbuds and listen to something lively, if only to keep you from dozing off and getting sunburned? Over the next 90 minutes or so, why not listen to a little Catherine Mansfield, one of the great short story writers of all time? Born in 1888 in New Zealand as Catherine Beauchamp, she died in 1923 in France as Catherine Mansfield at the tender age of 34, a tragic victim of incurable tuberculosis. Still, she left a lasting impression on world literature. An early feminist and bohemian, sympathetic to the indigenous people of New Zealand, Catherine Mansfield eventually headed for London, England. There, she studied music, but began writing short stories that quickly garnered her an admiring readership with D.H. Lawrence and Virginia Woolf, to name just two. Inspired by Chekhov, Mansfield began early in the 20th century writing brilliant and experimental short stories that still evoke both delicate, yet ironic, slice-of-life landscapes of interpersonal relationships. Early on, she mastered literary techniques far in advance of those later employed by James Joyce and William Faulkner. Her unique ability, for instance, to artistically intermingle interior monologues with shimmering external realities has never been bested by any other writer in the English language. So today, we bring you four of Catherine Mansfield's best short stories, The Singing Lesson, The Garden Party, A Cup of Tea, and Bliss. We begin with Leslie Betts reading The Singing Lesson. With despair, cold, sharp despair buried deep in her heart like a wicked knife, Ms. Meadows, in cap and gown and carrying a little baton, trod the cold corridors that led to the music hall. Girls of all ages, rosy from the air and bubbling over with that gleeful excitement that comes from running to school on a fine autumn morning, hurried, skipped, fluttered by. From the hollow classrooms came a quick drumming of voices. A bell rang. A voice like a bird cried, Muriel! And then there came from the staircase a tremendous knock, knock, knocking. Someone had dropped her dumbbells. The science mistress stopped Miss Meadows. Good morning, she cried in her sweet, affected drawl. Isn't it cold? It might be winter. Miss Meadows, hugging the knife, stared in hatred at the science mistress. Everything about her was sweet, pale like honey. You would not have been surprised to see a bee caught in the tangles of that yellow hair. It is rather sharp, said Miss Meadows grimly. The other smiled her sugary smile. You look frozen, she said. Her blue eyes opened wide. There came a mocking light in them. Had she noticed anything? Oh, not quite as bad as that, said Miss Meadows, and she gave the science mistress, in exchange for her smile, a quick grimace and passed on. Forms four, five, and six were assembled in the music hall. The noise was deafening. 
On the platform by the piano stood Mary Beasley, Miss Meadows' favorite, who played accompaniments. She was turning the music stool. When she saw Miss Meadows, she gave a loud warning, Shh, shh, girls! And Miss Meadows, her hands thrust in her sleeves, the baton under her arm, strode down the center aisle, mounted the steps, turned sharply, seized the brass music stand, planted it in front of her, and gave two sharp taps with her baton for silence. Silence, please, immediately. And, looking at nobody, her glance swept over that sea of colored flannel blouses with bobbing pink faces and hands, quivering butterfly hair bows and music books outspread. She knew perfectly well what they were thinking. Meddy is in a wax. Well, let them think it. Her eyelids quivered. She tossed her head, defying them. What could the thoughts of those creatures matter to someone who stood there bleeding to death, pierced to the heart, to the heart, by such a letter? I feel more and more strongly that our marriage would be a mistake. Not that I do not love you. I love you as much as it is possible for me to love any woman. But truth to tell, I have come to the conclusion that I am not a marrying man. And the idea of settling down fills me with nothing but... And the word disgust was scratched out lightly and regret written over the top. Basil. Miss Meadows stalked over to the piano. And Mary Beasley, who was waiting for this moment, bent forward. Her curls fell over her cheeks while she breathed. Good morning, Miss Meadows. And she motioned towards, rather than handed to her mistress a beautiful yellow chrysanthemum. This little ritual of the flower had been gone through for ages and ages, quite a term and a half. It was as much a part of the lesson as opening the piano. But this morning, instead of taking it up, instead of tucking it into her belt while she leaned over Mary and said, Thank you, Mary, how very nice. Turn to page 32. What was Mary's horror when Miss Meadows totally ignored the chrysanthemum, made no reply to her greeting, but said in a voice of ice, Page 14, please, and mark the accents well. Staggering moment! Mary blushed until the tears stood in her eyes, but Miss Meadows was gone back to the music stand. Her voice rang through the music hall. Page 14. We will begin with page 14. A lament. Now, girls, you ought to know it by this time. We shall take it all together, not in parts, all together, and without expression. Sing it, though quite simply beating time with the left hand. She raised the baton. She tapped the music stand twice. Down came Mary on the opening chord. Down came all those left hands beating the air, and in chimed those young, mournful voices. Fast. Ah, too fast fade the roses of pleasure. Soon autumn yields unto winter drear. Fleetly, ah, fleetly, music's gay measure passes away from the listening ear. Good heavens, what could be more tragic than that lament? 
Every note was a sigh, a sob, a groan of awful mournfulness. Miss Meadows lifted her arms in the wide gown and began conducting with both hands. I feel more and more strongly that our marriage would be a mistake, she beat. And the voices cried, Fleetly, ah, fleetly. What could have possessed him to write such a letter? What could have led up to it? It came out of nothing. His last letter had been all about a fumed oak bookcase he had bought for our books and a natty little hall stand he had seen. A very neat affair with a carved owl on a bracket holding three hat brushes in its claws. How she had smiled at that. So like a man to think one needed three hat brushes. From the listening ear, sang the voices. Once again, said Miss Meadows, but this time in parts, still without expression. Fast, ah, too fast. With the gloom of the contraltos added, one could scarcely help shuddering. Fade the roses of pleasure. Last time he had come to see her, Basil had worn a rose in his buttonhole. How handsome he had looked in that bright blue suit with that dark red rose. And he knew it, too. He couldn't help knowing it. First he stroked his hair, then his moustache. His teeth gleamed when he smiled. The headmaster's wife keeps on asking me to dinner. It's a perfect nuisance. I never get an evening to myself in that place. But can't you refuse? Oh, well, it doesn't do for a man in my position to be unpopular. Music's gay measure, wailed the voices. The willow trees outside the high, narrow windows waved in the wind. They had lost half their leaves. The tiny ones that clung wriggled like fishes caught on a line. I am not a marrying man. The voices were silent. The piano waited. Quite good, said Miss Meadows, but still in such a strange, stony tone that the younger girls began to feel positively frightened. But now that we know it, we shall take it with expression. As much expression as you can put into it. Think of the words, girls. Use your imaginations. Fast, ah, too fast, cried Miss Meadows. That ought to break out. A loud, strong forte, a lament, and then in the second line, winter drear. Make that drear sound as if the cold wind were blowing through it. Drear, she said so awfully that Mary Beasley on the music stool wriggled her spine. The third line should be one crescendo. Fleet, lea, fleet, lea, music's gay measure. Breaking on that first word of the last line passes, and then on the word away, you must begin to die, to fade, until the listening ear is nothing more than a faint whisper. You can slow down as much as you like almost on that last line. Now, please. Again, the two light taps. She lifted her arms again. Fast, ah, too fast. And the idea of settling down fills me with nothing but disgust. 
Disgust was what he had written. That was as good as to say their engagement was definitely broken off. Broken off the engagement! People had been surprised enough that she had got engaged. The science mistress would not believe it at first, but nobody had been as surprised as she. She was 30. Basil was 25. It had been a miracle, simply a miracle, to hear him say as they walked home from church that very dark night, You know, somehow or other, I've got fond of you. And he had taken hold of the end of her ostrich feather boa. Passes away from the listening ear. Repeat! Repeat, said Miss Meadows. More expression, girls, once more. Fast, all too fast. The older girls were crimson. Some of the younger ones began to cry. Big spots of rain blew against the windows, and one could hear the willows whispering, Not that I do not love you. But, my darling, if you love me, thought Miss Meadows, I don't mind how much it is. Love me as little as you like. But she knew he didn't love her. Not to have cared enough to scratch out that word disgust so that she couldn't read it. Soon autumn yields unto winter drear. She would have to leave the school too. She could never face the science mistress or the girls after it got known. She would have to disappear somewhere. Passes away. The voices began to die, to fade, to whisper, to vanish. Suddenly, the door opened. A little girl in blue walked fussily up the aisle, hanging her head, biting her lips, and twisting the silver bangle on her red little wrist. She came up the steps and stood before Miss Meadows. Well, Monica, what is it? Oh, if you please, Miss Meadows, said the little girl, gasping. Miss Wyatt wants to see you in the mistress's room. Very well, said Miss Meadows, and she called to the girls. I shall put you on your honor to talk quietly while I'm away. But they were too subdued to do anything else. Most of them were blowing their noses. The corridors were silent and cold. They echoed to Miss Meadows' steps. The headmistress sat at her desk. For a moment she did not look up. She was, as usual, disentangling her eyeglasses, which had got caught in her lace tie. Sit down, Miss Meadows, she said very kindly. And then she picked up a pink envelope from the blotting pad. I sent for you just now because this telegram has come for you. A telegram for me, Miss Wyatt. Basil, he'd committed suicide, decided Miss Meadows. Her hand flew out, but Miss Wyatt held the telegram back for a moment. I hope it's not bad news, she said so more than kindly. And Miss Meadows tore it open. Pay no attention to letter. Must have been mad. Bought hat stand today. Basil, she read. She couldn't take her eyes off the telegram. I do hope it's nothing very serious, said Miss Wyatt, leaning forward. Oh, no, thank you, Miss Wyatt, blushed Miss Meadows. It's nothing bad at all. It's, and she gave an apologetic little laugh. It's from my fiancé, saying that, saying that, there was a pause. I see, said Miss Wyatt. And another pause. Then, 
You've fifteen minutes more of your class, Miss Meadows, haven't you? Yes, Miss Wyatt. She got up. She half ran towards the door. Oh, just one minute, Miss Meadows," said Miss Wyatt. "I must say, I don't approve of my teachers having telegrams sent to them in school hours, unless in case of very bad news, such as death," explained Miss Wyatt, "or a very serious accident, or something to that effect. Good news, Miss Meadows, will always keep you know on the wings of hope." Of love, of joy, Miss Meadows sped back to the music hall, up the aisle, up the steps, over to the piano. Page thirty-two, Mary," she said. "Page thirty-two," and picking up the yellow chrysanthemum, she held it to her lips to hide her smile. Then she turned to the girls, wrapped with her baton. Page thirty-two, girls. Page thirty-two. We come here today with flowers o'erladen, with baskets of fruit and ribbons to boot, to congratulate. Stop! Stop! Cried Miss Meadows. This is awful. This is dreadful. And she beamed at her girls. What's the matter with you all? Think, girls, think of what you're singing. Use your imaginations. With flowers o'erladen, baskets of fruit and ribbons to boot, and congratulate. Miss Meadows broke off. Don't look so doleful, girls. It ought to sound warm, joyful, eager. Congratulate. Once more, quickly, all together. Now then, and this time, Miss Meadows' voice sounded over all the other voices, full, deep, glowing with expression. That was Leslie Betts reading the singing lesson written by Catherine Mansfield. Next up, we have the garden party read by Kathy Chapesky. And after all, the weather was ideal. They could not have had a more perfect day for a garden party if they had ordered it. Windless, warm, the sky without a cloud. Only the blue was veiled with a haze of light gold, as it sometimes is in early summer. The gardener had been up since dawn, mowing the lawns and sweeping them until the grass and the dark, flat rosettes where the daisy plants had been seemed to shine. As for the roses, you could not help feeling they understood that roses are the only flowers that impress people at garden parties, the only flowers that everybody is certain of knowing. Hundreds, yes, literally hundreds, had come out in a single night. The green bushes bowed down as though they had been visited by archangels. Breakfast was not yet over before the men came to put up the marquee. Where do you want the marquee put, Mother? Oh, my dear child, it's no use asking me. I'm determined to leave everything to you, children, this year. Forget I am your mother. Treat me as an honored guest. But Meg could not possibly go and supervise the men. She had washed her hair before breakfast, and she sat drinking her coffee in a green turban with a dark, wet curl stamped on each cheek. Josie the butterfly always came down in a silk petticoat and a kimono jacket. You'll have to go, Laura. You're the artistic one. 
Away Laura flew, still holding her piece of bread and butter. It's so delicious to have an excuse for eating out of doors, and besides, she loved having to arrange things. She always felt she could do it so much better than anybody else. Four men in their shirt sleeves stood grouped together on the garden path. They carried staves covered with rolls of canvas, and they had big tool bags slung on their backs. They looked impressive. Laura wished now that she had not got the bread and butter, but there was nowhere to put it, and she couldn't possibly throw it away. She blushed and tried to look severe and even a little bit short-sighted as she came up to them. "'Good morning,' she said, copying her mother's voice. But that sounded so fearfully affected that she was ashamed and stammered like a little girl. "'Oh, uh, have you come? Is it about the Marquis?' "'That's right, miss,' said the tallest of the men, a lanky, freckled fellow, and he shifted his tool bag, knocked back his straw hat, and smiled down at her. "'That's about it.' His smile was so easy, so friendly, that Laura recovered. What nice eyes he had, small, but such a dark blue. And now she looked at the others. They were smiling, too. "'Cheer up. We won't bite,' their smile seemed to say. "'How very nice workmen were.' And what a beautiful morning. She mustn't mention the morning. She must be businesslike. The Marquis. Well, what about the lily lawn? Would that do? And she pointed to the lily lawn with the hand that didn't hold the bread and butter. They turned. They stared in the direction. A little fat chap thrust out his underlip. And the tall fellow frowned. I don't fancy it, said he. Not conspicuous enough. You see, with a thing like a marquee, and he turned to Laura in his easy way, you want to put it somewhere where it'll give you a bang slap in the eye, if you follow me. Laura's upbringing made her wonder for a moment whether it was quite respectful of a workman to talk to her of bang slap in the eye, but she did quite follow him. A corner of the tennis court, she suggested. But the band's going to be in one corner. Hmm going to have a band, are you? said another of the workmen. He was pale. He had a haggard look as his dark eyes scanned the tennis court. What was he thinking? Only a very small band, said Laura gently. Perhaps he wouldn't mind so much if the band was quite small. But the tall fellow interrupted. Look here, miss, that's the place. Against those trees, over there, that'll do fine. Against the caracas, Then the carica trees would be hidden, and they were so lovely with their broad gleaming leaves and their clusters of yellow fruit. They were like trees you imagine growing on a desert island, proud, solitary, lifting their leaves and fruit to the sun in a kind of silent splendor. Must they be hidden by a marquee? They must. Already the men had shouldered their staves and were making for the place. Only the tall fellow was left. He bent down pinched a sprig of lavender, put his thumb and forefinger to his nose, and snuffed up the smell. When Laura saw that gesture, she forgot all about the caracas in her wonder at him caring for things like that, caring for the smell of lavender. How many men that she knew would have done such a thing? Oh, how extraordinarily nice workmen were, she thought. Why couldn't she have workmen for her friends rather than the silly boys she danced with and who came to Sunday night supper? She would get on much better with men like these. 
It's all the fault, she decided, as the tall fellow drew something on the back of an envelope, something that was to be looped up or left to hang, of these absurd class distinctions. Well, for her part, she didn't feel them. Not a bit. Not an atom. And now there came the chalk, chalk of wooden hammers. Someone whistled. Someone sang out. Are you right there, matey? Matey. The friendliness of it. The, the, just to prove how happy she was, just to show the tall fellow how at home she felt and how she despised stupid conventions, Laura took a big bite of her bread and butter as she stared at the little drawing. She felt just like a work girl. Laura, Laura, where are you? Telephone, Laura, a voice cried from the house. Coming! Away she skimmed over the lawn, up the path, up the steps, across the veranda and into the porch. In the hall, her father and Laurie were brushing their hats, ready to go to the office. I say, Laura, said Laurie very fast, you might just give a squiz at my coat before this afternoon. See if it wants pressing. I will, said she. Suddenly she couldn't stop herself. She ran at Laurie and gave him a small, quick squeeze. Oh, I do love parties, don't you, gasped Laura. Rather, said Laurie's warm, boyish voice and he squeezed his sister too and gave her a gentle push. Dash off to the telephone, old girl. The telephone. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. Kitty, good morning. Come to lunch. Oh, do, dear. Delighted, of course. It will only be a very scratch meal, just the sandwich crusts and broken meringue shells and what's left over. Yes, isn't it a perfect morning? You're white? Oh, I certainly should. One moment, hold the line, mother's calling. And Laura sat back. What mother? Can't hear. Mrs. Sheridan's voice floated down the stairs. Tell her to wear that sweet hat she had on last Sunday. Mother says you're to wear that sweet hat you had on last Sunday. Good. One o'clock. Bye-bye. Laura put back the receiver, flung her arms over her head, took a deep breath stretched and let them fall. Oh, she sighed. And the moment after the sigh, she sat up quickly. She was still, listening. All the doors in the house seemed to be open. The house was alive with soft, quick steps and running voices. The green baize door that led to the kitchen regions swung open and shut with a muffled thud. And now there came a long, chuckling, absurd sound. It was the heavy piano being moved on its stiff casters. But the air, if you stopped to notice, was the air always like this? Little faint winds were playing chase, in at the tops of the windows, out at the doors. And there were two tiny spots of sun, one on the ink pot, one on a silver photograph frame, playing too, darling little spots, especially the one on the ink pot lid. It was quite warm, a warm little silver star. She could have kissed it. The front doorbell pealed, and there sounded the rustle of Sadie's print skirt on the stairs. A man's voice murmured. Sadie answered careless. I'm sure I don't know. Wait, I'll ask Mrs. Sheridan. What is it, Sadie? Laura came into the hall. It's the florist, Miss Laura. It was indeed. There, just inside the door, stood a wide, shallow tray full of pots of pink lilies. No other kind. Nothing but lilies. Canna lilies, big pink flowers, wide open, radiant, almost frighteningly alive on bright crimson stems. 
Oh, Sadie, said Laura, and the sound was like a little moan. She crouched down as if to warm herself at that blaze of lilies. She felt they were in her fingers, on her lips, growing in her breast. It's some mistake, she said faintly. Nobody ever ordered so many. Sadie, go and find Mother. But at that moment, Mrs. Sheridan joined them. It's quite right, she said calmly. Yes, I ordered them. Aren't they lovely? She pressed Laura's arm. I was passing the shop yesterday and I saw them in the window and I suddenly thought for once in my life I shall have enough canna lilies. The garden party will be a good excuse. But I thought you said you didn't mean to interfere, said Laura. Sadie had gone. The florist's man was still outside at his van. She put her arm round her mother's neck and gently, very gently, bit her mother's ear. My darling child, you wouldn't like a logical mother, would you? Oh, don't do that. Here's the man. He carried more lilies still, another whole tray. Bank them up just inside the door on both sides of the porch, please, said Mrs. Sheridan. Don't you agree, Laura? Oh, I do, mother. In the drawing room, Meg, Josie, and good little Hans had at last succeeded in moving the piano. Now, if we put this Chesterfield against the wall and move everything out of the room except the chairs, don't you think? Quite. Hans, move these tables into the smoking room and bring a sweeper to take these marks off the carpet and... One moment, Hans. Josie loved giving orders to the servants and they loved obeying her. She always made them feel they were taking part in some drama. Tell Mother and Miss Laura to come here at once. Very good, Miss Josie. She turned to Meg. I want to hear what the piano sounds like, just in case I'm asked to sing this afternoon. Let's try over This Life is Weary. Pom, ta-da-ta, ti-ta. The piano burst out so passionately that Josie's face changed. She clasped her hands. She looked mournfully and enigmatically at her mother and Laura as they came in. This life is weary, a tear, a sigh, a love that changes. This life is weary, a tear, a sigh, a love that changes. And then goodbye. But at the word goodbye, and although the piano sounded more desperate than ever, her face broke into a brilliant, dreadfully unsympathetic smile. Aren't I in good voice, Mummy? she beamed. This life is weary, hope comes to die, a dream awakening. But now Sadie interrupted them. What is it, Sadie? If you please, em, Cook says, have you got the flags for the sandwiches? The flags for the sandwiches, Sadie, echoed Mrs. Sheridan dreamily, and the children knew by her face that she hadn't got them. Let me see, and she said to Sadie firmly, tell Cook I'll let her have them in ten minutes. Sadie went. Now, Laura, said her mother quickly, come with me into the smoking room. I've got the name somewhere on the back of an envelope. You'll have to write them out for me. Meg, go upstairs this minute and take that wet thing off your head. Josie, run and finish dressing this instant. Do you hear me, children, or shall I have to tell your father when he comes home tonight? And, and, Josie, pacify Cook if you do go into the kitchen, will you? I'm terrified of her this morning. The envelope was found at last behind the dining room clock, though how it had got there, Mrs. Sheridan could not imagine. 
one of you children must have stolen it out of my bag because I remember vividly cream cheese and lemon curd. Have you done that? Yes. Egg and... Mrs. Sheridan held the envelope away from her. Looks like mice. It can't be mice, can it? Olive pet, said Laura, looking over her shoulder. Yes, of course, olive. What a horrible combination it sounds. Egg and olive. They were finished at last, and Laura took them off to the kitchen. She found Josie there, pacifying the cook, who did not look at all terrifying. I have never seen such exquisite sandwiches, said Josie's rapturous voice. How many kinds did you say there were, cook? Fifteen? Fifteen, Miss Josie. Well, cook, I congratulate you. Cook swept up crusts with the long sandwich knife and smiled broadly. Godbers has come, announced Sadie, issuing out of the pantry. She had seen the man pass the window. That meant the cream puffs had come. Godbers were famous for their cream puffs. Nobody ever thought of making them at home. Bring them in and put them on the table, my girl, ordered Cook. Sadie brought them in and went back to the door. Of course, Laura and Josie were far too grown up to really care about such things. All the same, they couldn't help agreeing that the puffs looked very attractive. Very. Cook began arranging them, shaking off the extra icing sugar. Don't they carry one back to all one's parties, said Laura. I suppose they do, said practical Josie, who never liked to be carried back. They look beautifully light and feathery, I must say. Have one each, my dears, said Cook in her comfortable voice. Your ma won't know. Oh, impossible. Fancy cream puffs so soon after breakfast? The very idea made one shudder. All the same, two minutes later, Josie and Laura were licking their fingers with that absorbed inward look that only comes from whipped cream. Let's go into the garden, out by the back way, suggested Laura. I want to see how the men are getting on with the marquee. They're such awfully nice men. But the back door was blocked by Cook, Sadie, Godber's man, and Hans. Something had happened. <coughs> Clucked Cook like an agitated hen. Sadie had her hand clapped to her cheek as though she had toothache. Hans's face was screwed up in the effort to understand. Only Godber's man seemed to be enjoying himself. It was his story. What's the matter? What's happened? There's been a horrible accident, said Cook. A man killed. A man killed? Where? How? When? But Godber's man wasn't going to have his story snatched from under his very nose. Know those little cottages just below here, miss? Know them? Of course she knew them. Well, there's a young chap living there, name of Scott, a carter. His horse shied at a traction engine, corner of Hawk Street this morning, and he was thrown out on the back of his head. Killed. Dead. Laura stared at Godber's man. Dead when they picked him up, said Godber's man with relish. They were taking the body home as I come up here. And he said to the cook, he's left a wife and five little ones. Josie, come here. Laura caught hold of her sister's sleeve and dragged her through the kitchen to the other side of the green baize door. There she paused and leaned against it. Josie, she said, horrified. However are we going to stop everything? Stop everything, Laura, cried Josie in astonishment. What do you mean? Stop the garden party, of course. Why did Josie pretend? But Josie was still more amazed. Stop the garden party? My dear Laura, don't be so absurd. 
Of course we can't do anything of the kind. Nobody expects us to. Don't be so extravagant. But we can't possibly have a garden party with a man dead just outside the front gate. That really was extravagant, for the little cottages were in a lane to themselves at the very bottom of a steep rise that led up to the house. A broad road ran between. True, they were far too near. They were the greatest possible eyesore, and they had no right to be in that neighbourhood at all. They were little mean dwellings painted a chocolate brown. In the garden patches there was nothing but cabbage stalks, sick hens, and tomato cans. The very smoke coming out of their chimneys was poverty-stricken. Little rags and shreds of smoke, so unlike the great silvery plumes that uncurled from the Sheridan's chimneys. Washerwomen lived in the lane, and sweeps, and a cobbler, and a man whose house front was studded all over with minute bird cages. Children swarmed. When the Sheridans were little, they were forbidden to set foot there because of the revolting language and of what they might catch. But since they were grown up, Laura and Laurie on their prowls sometimes walked through. It was disgusting and sordid. They came out with a shudder. But still, one must go everywhere, one must see everything. So through they went. And just think of what the band would sound like to that poor woman, said Laura. Oh, Laura, Josie began to be seriously annoyed. If you're going to stop a band playing every time someone has an accident, you'll lead a very strenuous life. I'm every bit as sorry about it as you. I feel just as sympathetic. Her eyes hardened. She looked at her sister just as she used to when they were little and fighting together. You won't bring a drunken workman back to life by being sentimental, she said softly. Drunk? Who said he was drunk? Laura turned furiously on Josie. She said, just as they had used to say on those occasions, I'm going straight up to tell Mother. Do, dear, cooed Josie. Mother, can I come into your room? Laura turned to the big glass doorknob. Of course, child. Why, what's the matter? What's given you such a color? Mrs. Sheridan turned round from her dressing table. She was trying on a new hat. Mother, a man's been killed, began Laura. Not in the garden, interrupted her mother. No, no. Oh, what a fright you gave me. Mrs. Sheridan sighed with relief and took off the big hat and held it on her knees. But listen, mother, said Laura. Breathless, half choking, she told the dreadful story. Of course, we can't have our party, can we, she pleaded. The band and everybody arriving, they'd hear us, mother. They're nearly neighbors. To Laura's astonishment, her mother behaved just like Josie. It was harder to bear because she seemed amused. She refused to take Laura seriously. But my dear child, use your common sense. It's only by accident we've heard of it. If someone had died there normally, and I can't understand how they keep alive in those pokey little holes, we should still be having our party, shouldn't we? Laura had to say yes to that, but she felt it was all wrong. She sat down on her mother's sofa and pinched the cushion frill. Mother, isn't it terribly heartless of us? she asked. Darling, Mrs. Sheridan got up and came over to her, carrying the hat. Before Laura could stop her, she had popped it on. My child, said her mother, the hat is yours. It's made for you. It's much too young for me. I have never seen you look such a picture. Look at yourself. And she held up her hand mirror. But mother, Laura began again. She couldn't look at herself. She turned aside. This time, Mrs. Sheridan lost patience, just as Josie had done. 
You are being very absurd, Laura, she said coldly. People like that don't expect sacrifices from us. And it's not very sympathetic to spoil everybody's enjoyment as you're doing now. I don't understand, said Laura, and she walked quickly out of the room into her own bedroom. There, quite by chance, the first thing she saw was this charming girl in the mirror, in her black hat trimmed with gold daisies and a long black velvet ribbon. Never had she imagined she could look like that. Is mother right, she thought, and now she hoped her mother was right. Am I being extravagant? Perhaps it was extravagant. Just for a moment she had another glimpse of that poor woman and those little children, and the body being carried into the house, but it all seemed blurred, unreal, like a picture in the newspaper. I'll remember it again after the party's over, she decided, and somehow that seemed quite the best plan. Lunch was over by half past one. By half past two, they were all ready for the fray. The green-coated band had arrived and was established in a corner of the tennis court. My dear, trilled Kitty Maitland, aren't they too like frogs for words? You ought to have arranged them round the pond with the conductor in the middle on a leaf. Laurie arrived and hailed them on his way to dress. At the sight of him, Laura remembered the accident again. She wanted to tell him. If Laurie agreed with the others, then it was bound to be all right, and she followed him into the hall. Laurie! Hello! He was halfway upstairs, but when he turned round and saw Laura, he suddenly puffed out his cheeks and goggled his eyes at her. My word, Laura, you do look stunning, said Laurie. What an absolutely topping hat! Laura said faintly, is it? And she smiled up at Laurie and didn't tell him after all. Soon after that, people began coming in streams. The band struck up. The hired waiters ran from the house to the marquee. Wherever you looked, there were couples strolling, bending to the flowers, greeting, moving on over the lawn. They were like bright birds that had alighted in the Sheridan's garden for this one afternoon on their way to where? Ah, what happiness it is to be with people who all are happy, to press hands, press cheeks, smile into eyes. Darling, Laura, how well you look. What a becoming hat, child. Laura, you look quite Spanish. I've never seen you look so striking. And Laura, glowing, answered softly, Have you had tea? Won't you have an ice? The passion fruit ices really are rather special. She ran to her father and begged him, Daddy, darling, can't the band have something to drink? And the perfect afternoon slowly ripened, slowly faded. Slowly its petals closed. Never a more delightful garden party. The greatest success. Quite the most. Laura helped her mother with the goodbyes. They stood side by side in the porch till it was all over. All over, all over. Thank heaven, said Mrs. Sheridan. Round up the others, Laura. Let's go and have some fresh coffee. I'm exhausted. Yes, it's been very successful, but oh, these parties, these parties. Why will you children insist on giving parties? And they all of them sat down in the deserted marquee. Have a sandwich, Daddy dear. I wrote the flag. Thanks. Mr. Sheridan took a bite and the sandwich was gone. He took another. I suppose you didn't hear of a beastly accident that happened today, he said. My dear, said Mrs. Sheridan, holding up her hand, we did. It nearly ruined the party. Laura insisted that we should put it off. Oh, mother, Laura didn't want to be teased about it. 
It was a horrible affair all the same, said Mr. Sheridan. The chap was married, too. Lived just below in the lane, and leaves a wife and half a dozen kiddies, so they say. An awkward little silence fell. Mrs. Sheridan fidgeted with her cup. Really, it was very tactless of father. Suddenly she looked up. There on the table were all those sandwiches, cakes, puffs, all uneaten, all going to be wasted. She had one of her brilliant ideas. I know, she said. Let's make up a basket. Let's send that poor creature some of this perfectly good food. At any rate, it will be the greatest treat for the children. Don't you agree? And she's sure to have neighbors calling in and so on. What a point to have it already prepared. Laura, she jumped up. Get me the big basket out of the stairs cupboard. But mother, do you really think it's a good idea, said Laura. Again, how curious. She seemed to be different from them all. To take scraps from their party. Would the poor woman really like that? Of course. What's the matter with you today? An hour or two ago, you were insisting on us being sympathetic. And now, oh well, Laura ran for the basket. It was filled. It was heaped by her mother. Take it yourself, darling, said she. Run down just as you are. No, wait, take the arum lilies too. People of that class are so impressed by arum lilies. The stems will ruin her lace frock, said practical Josie. So they would, just in time. Only the basket then. And Laura, her mother followed her out of the marquee, don't on any account. What mother? No, better not put such ideas into the child's head. Nothing. Run along. It was just growing dusky as Laura shut their garden gates. A big dog ran by like a shadow. The road gleamed white, and down below in the hollow, the little cottages were in deep shade. How quiet it seemed after the afternoon. Here she was going down the hill to somewhere where a man lay dead, and she couldn't realize it. Why couldn't she? She stopped a minute. And it seemed to her that kisses, voices, tinkling spoons, laughter, the smell of crushed grass were somehow inside her. She had no room for anything else. How strange. She looked up at the pale sky and all she thought was, yes, it was the most successful party. Now the broad road was crossed. The lane began, smoky and dark. Women in shawls and men's tweed caps hurried by. Men hung over the palings. The children played in the doorways. A low hum came from the mean little cottages. In some of them there was a flicker of light, and a shadow crab-like moved across the window. Laura bent her head and hurried on. She wished now she had put on a coat. How her frock shone, and the big hat with the velvet streamer. If only it was another hat. Were the people looking at her? They must be. It was a mistake to have come. She knew all along it was a mistake. Should she go back even now? No, too late. This was the house. It must be. A dark knot of people stood outside. Beside the gate, an old, old woman with a crutch sat in a chair watching. She had her feet on a newspaper. The voices stopped as Laura drew near. The group parted. It was as though she was expected, as though they had known she was coming here. Laura was terribly nervous. Tossing the velvet ribbon over her shoulder, she said to a woman standing by, Is this Mrs. Scott's house? And the woman, smiling queerly, said, It is, my lass. Oh, to be away from this, she actually said. 
Help me, God, as she walked up the tiny path and knocked. To be away from those staring eyes or to be covered up in anything, one of those women's shawls even. I'll just leave the basket and go, she decided. I shan't even wait for it to be emptied. Then the door opened. A little woman in black showed in the gloom. Laura said, are you Mrs. Scott? But to her horror, the woman answered, walk in, please, miss. And she was shut in the passage. No, said Laura, I don't want to come in. I only want to leave this basket. Mother sent. The little woman in the gloomy passage seemed not to have heard her. Step this way, please, miss, she said in an oily voice, and Laura followed her. She found herself in a wretched little low kitchen lighted by a smoky lamp. There was a woman sitting before the fire. M, said the little creature who had let her in. M, it's a young lady. She turned to Laura. She said meaningly, I'm her sister, miss. You'll excuse her, won't you? Oh, but of course, said Laura. Please, please don't disturb her. I, I only want to leave. But at that moment, the woman at the fire turned round. Her face, puffed up, red, with swollen eyes and swollen lips, looked terrible. She seemed as though she couldn't understand why Laura was there. What did it mean? Why was this stranger standing in the kitchen with a basket? What was it all about? And the poor face puckered up again. All right, my dear, said the other. I'll thank the young lady. And again she began, you'll excuse her, miss, I'm sure. And her face, swollen too, tried an oily smile. Laura wanted only to get out, to get away. She was back in the passage. The door opened. She walked straight through into the bedroom where the dead man was lying. You'd like a look at him, wouldn't you? said M's sister, and she brushed past Laura over to the bed. Don't be afraid, my lass. And now her voice sounded fond and sly, and fondly she drew down the sheet. He looks a picture. There's nothing to show. Come along, my dear. Laura came. There lay a young man, fast asleep, sleeping so soundly, so deeply, that he was far, far away from them both. Oh, so remote, so peaceful. He was dreaming. Never wake him up again. His head was sunk in the pillow. His eyes were closed. They were blind under the closed eyelids. He was given up to his dream. What did garden parties and baskets and lake frocks matter to him? He was far from all those things. He was wonderful, beautiful. While they were laughing and while the band was playing, this marvel had come to the lane. Happy, happy, all is well, said that sleeping face. This is just as it should be. I am content. But all the same, you had to cry, and she couldn't go out of the room without saying something to him. Laura gave a loud, childish sob. Forgive my hat, she said. And this time she didn't wait for M's sister. She found her way out of the door, down the path, past all those dark people. At the corner of the lane, she met Laurie. He stepped out of the shadow. Is that you, Laura? Yes. Mother was getting anxious. Was it all right? Yes, quite. Oh, Laurie. She took his arm. She pressed up against him. I say, you're not crying, are you? Asked her brother. Laura shook her head. She was. Laurie put his arm round her shoulder. Don't cry, he said in his warm, loving voice. Was it awful? No, sobbed Laura. It was simply marvelous. But Laurie... She stopped. She looked at her brother. Isn't life, she stammered, 
isn't life. But what life was, she couldn't explain. No matter, he quite understood. Isn't it, darling, said Lori. That was The Garden Party by Catherine Mansfield and read by Kathy Chapesky. Time now for a short break, if not for a quick swim. We'll be right back and meet up again after you've toweled off. <laughs> 